Salutations and welcome back. I'm very delighted to be here with the composer, percussionist, and SOFA co-founder Ingar Zak in Ingar's studio at the Norwegian Academy of Music, where he is a doctoral artistic research fellow. Ingar's discography is a dictionary of musical possibility, and you'd be forgiven if you mistook his catalog for the musical output of a small town. A sampling of his work includes long-term collaborations as part of groups such as Huntsville, a group hailed as Yoga Country and Abstract Drone Americana, his quartet Danse les Aubes, uh, which, if you'll pardon my French, means In the Trees, his trio Looper, another trio Mural, and a duo with the percussionist Michele Rabia, as well as collaborations with the monumental improviser Derek Bailey, as well as the sound poet Yop Blanc. As a composer, he's written for bands such as Quattura Bazzini, Ensemble Music Fabric, Speak Percussion, and Pinkwins. The last time I saw Ingar in the hallways of school, he was carrying a sack of farm-fresh beets that had been foisted on him by a friend, some of which he so generously regifted to me. There's unfortunately no beets today, at least not of the vegetal kind, which is funny because um, percussion beets. Uh, anyway, um, he is nevertheless reprising his generosity by taking some time out of his immense schedule to share some perspectives on his new solo album, Musica Liquida, which came out on Sofa this past October alongside the album Threads by Maddie Barbier and the album Craft Balance by Jan-Martin Smerdal and Oystein Weiler-Odin, both of which you can hear about on other episodes linked in the show notes. The album Musica Liquida represents the latest evolution of Ingar's long-term research based at the Norwegian Academy of Music into what happens when you give a drum a vibrating speaker, also known as vibration transducers, and which sometimes go by the more poetic term whispering windows. Simply described, these speakers work by vibrating against surfaces, causing the surfaces themselves to vibrate and thus transmit sound. Ingar took these speakers, along with the rest of his setup, into an Oslo landmark, a museum founded by the late 19th to mid-20th century Norwegian artist Emanuel Vigeland that's home to a strange and spectacular mural. Musicians, I should say, have a special affinity for the space because of how resonant it is. In this album, I fancy that I hear a sort of surrealist travelogue, a lithe progression of relationships between instruments and space that's at once totally present and yet slipping out of reach into new surprises. And on that note, let's listen to an excerpt from the first track, Mercurio, and then we'll get into our talk. Throughout, by the way, you're going to hear extracts from the album's three tracks. Hope you enjoy!
Salutations and welcome back. I'm very delighted to be here with the composer, percussionist, and SOFA co-founder Ingar Zak in Ingar Studio at the Norwegian Academy of Music. Ingar, the album is rooted in your ongoing research project based at the Norwegian Academy of Music called The Vibrating Drum, in which you've been exploring the possibilities of vibrating speakers placed against the face of the drum. Can you tell us about some of the origins of this interest? Well, the origin, uh, hi, hello, by the way, <laughs> I can say that it is an approach that I have been investigating and researching for a long time, not particularly with this, uh, this setup that I have now. That's why I want to actually research this uh, in direction, because I thought I could go more in depth of this, uh, the resonance of the membrane. And also actually, in the beginning, I started using just singing bowls, you know, these Tibetan singing bowls. And I started to, I used it with the, with the bass bow on it. And I started to, to um, manipulate the, the sound with actually adding stuff on the, on, the, on the skin of the drum. And I realized that, that they, they were vibrating in sympathy. Also, I could get more, could get also harmonics with the, putting a triangle on it. But I also wanted to do, do other stuff at the same time, simultaneously. So... So I was thinking about how there must be a way of how I can actually create or make the membrane vibrate without me do, having my hands occupied. So I could do some other stuff as well. And then I came over these, um, these small speakers, which actually are used for iPhones and, and iPads that you can bring with you, which are vibrate on basically on every surface. It can be a shelf, it can be an instrument, whatever. But then I just placed it on on the on the drum, and actually it was like, wow, this is there. <laughs> there lies and, and tons of possibilities for me to explore. And then uh, with these speakers, they were quite unreliable. So they are, I mean, they are not a very good quality either. So actually, I had some problems with them. They didn't work, and then they turned off. And then they had the limiter inside of them, which actually limits the frequency possibility, which I was actually, it was crucial for me to actually working down in the low end of the frequency spectre and also having a more powerful speaker. So I thought, okay, I need to find a setup and a speaker setup with the transducers that actually can allow me to go into these areas of frequencies. That's interesting to me that you can unlock this entirely different universe. You can achieve this new sort of freedom, but then with that achievement comes other awarenesses of these new constraints. So perhaps this uh, this dance between the possibilities um, that you know and also these future uh, <laughs> inhibitions that you don't yet know about. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's the, that's the this thing. What that, what that's my work is centered about these things, and also this uh, this album that I that I I released is uh, is uh, actually based from a, a long process of actually trying to find material that could work on my drums on these particular three drums that I use in this project. And uh, after after the the long period of actually investigating the material in my space here at the academy, I got really tired of it. I said, "What should I do with this now? I, mean, I need, I don't, I don't like it anymore. I have to do something." And then it occurred to me, I think, "Okay, I need to record it, but uh, let's just find another space for it to actually, so I can actually get." kind of inspired again to do something with it because I mean the material has stayed with me for so long and then I didn't do anything 
productive uh, with it, not concerts, not anything. So, okay, let's let's just document this material, but with another kind of, uh, in another kind of space, which gives me another input and also another creational mindset on how to do things. Well, one thing that really has struck me about all of your work is that you both in the albums, but also in your interviews, you describe this kind of uh, restlessness. And I was curious to know for this album, how you kind of navigated your way to recording some of these ideas. How do you just decide that this is the time for an album? Well, the time for an album is uh, also the, well, maybe it's never time for an album. I mean, you, you never know because, I mean, this, this material also has grown on me after the recording as well because, I mean, listening back to it, this was also kind of taking the material that I've worked for three, four months at this, in the studio, needed another uh, input. And so I, I went to this, this Im immense space in uh, in Oslo, where there's uh, there's a totally different acoustic sound, and uh, that gave me a sort of a, this input that I wanted, and also looking or listening back to it afterwards, also th think that there are things there which I couldn't have anticipated from from uh, from working with the material in the studio. So for me, it's like a birth of this material. I decided some of the material that I wanted to record, but I knew very well that because I know the space from before that it's going to be another, another outcome that I was predicting, and that that is what I like about the the recording situation that it's kind of a unique, unique frozen time in a way that this is, can only happen here and there. Even though that I have planned lots of the material, but I didn't really know how exactly, how, how I would edit it or how, which, which part I would actually select for the album afterwards. Tell us a little bit about this space, uh, which is the uh, the Emanuel Bigelon Museum, which I understand is pretty beloved by musicians, um, but it also happens to be a unique artistic creation. So tell us a little bit about what it's like to be in that particular place. Emanuel Bigelon Museum, it's... Well, it's it's his own mausoleum. Actually, he built it himself <laughs> when he was going to die. And actually, his urn is on top of the entry when you when you get in there. Lovely. Yeah, and and it's a it's a totally dark space. There's no windows there, and uh, I mean sonically, it's you can't have a conversation in there because the, the reverb is like more than 25 seconds, I think, and so it all gets blurred. I mean, you need to be conscious about what you're doing when you're bringing music in there and try to do something. I mean, it's a space for actually exploring stuff. I mean, if you take, for example, uh, a piece of contemporary music and you 
you want to play it in there, it's a waste of time. I think sometimes, I mean, it depends on the on the music. But for example, uh, a piece by Luciano Berio, for example, like uh, really, really contemporary and uh, difficult sonically, which there are tons of notes. I mean, it will be blurred and it, is, it doesn't have, make any sense to record it there. But I knew this place from before, and um, it is dark and it's full of frescoes, which actually are evident after a while, because when it's totally dark, your eyes are not accustomed to the space, so they kind of get, uh, you see them, and they're, uh, they reveal themselves after a while. I don't know how many minutes, but I mean, it's quite astonishing to go in there and see this. And that's built into the nature of the space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, exactly. This, these are frescoes on the walls and on the, in, in the ceiling too, I think. Can you describe the frescoes? Oh, they are full of uh, dead dead people and <laughs> and naked people. So it's quite... Uh, it's loaded with uh, some kind of energy and also the smell in there is also quite... quite um, mm, it gets to your head because I've been there for a while, for over four or five hours, at, uh, over three days, three four days, and you get get a headache. I don't know. It's maybe it's the humidity, or maybe it's the frescoes. Maybe it's something. Uh, it's the smell of Vigalon's uh, ashes, actually. Yeah, exactly. Oh, de Vigalon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so basically, for to going in there, I knew the space from before, so I've, I've recorded a couple of albums there from before, so I knew that this will do something about my perception of time for the material that I want to pr produce because it's all it's very orchestral and it's it's like layers upon layers that they live together they are all mashed that's why it's called musica liquida because it's uh, kind of liquid all these layers they are going into each other I like it was water that's what I thought it was when I listened back to it it's like kind of liquid music which you can't really focus on the, each layer they are all mixed together so basically that was my attempt when I re recorded in there is like how to manage these layers in this this space because I mean in a studio you can actually separate them very well but I wanted to do that to be just one whole one mixed orchestral thing so you have to be very careful with that when you enter with the material when you when you decide not to, when you have to take it out and uh, compose these these things in in real time in there, because you create with the space. That's the most important thing. But the space is uh, is crucial in this recording. was also um, wanting to ask you a bit about what you said earlier about how your approach to this doesn't necessarily follow any kind of established strain of logic. 
Uh, of course, there's not like a, and there's going to be a one to five cadence. It, there's nothing that you can so easily uh, define. And I found this notion uh, of the rhizome or this kind of branching to be very apt because for me, as I'm listening, I hear that there's this sort of evolutionary tree of sounds, but one that's not following any kind of like, you know, it's sort of like, how do we get to the aardvark in a way? Because when you look at it, you're just like, are like, what sort of decision could possibly have occurred in the evolutionary chain to make this kind of a uh, freak show? Uh, and yet it's so wonderful and funny to look at that you're not, you know, you're not like preoccupied about the decisions. You're just like, what? Uh, and so I had the similar feeling as I was listening to um, some of these tracks in that there are these moments that occur that really like immediately cohere for me and yet are incredibly surprising. So for example, on the second track, there's this, um, there's this kind of scraping motif that you're using. I'm not sure what the instrument is, but eventually it kind of is subsumed into this rattling sound and the relationship between those is so clear, but I suppose I would never have imagined that one can transform into the other in this way. Uh, so my question from all of this is just how do you prepare for these sort of transformations? Um, is it something that you're conscious of? Like, am I going to, how am I gonna turn this into this later? Or is it something that occurs to you in the moment? Yes, so the, the material that I prepare for recordings or concerts or collaborations, I can also say, is that I have a, some certain kind of building blocks that I work with. And as you say, it's kind of uh, hard to actually not plan the transitions because you need to have thought about it, especially in a space like that where things are like live for 25 seconds and if you've done something wrong, then you can just uh, throw away the recording. I mean, but anyway, this uh, this um, transitions is uh, important, yes. And I also plan for, the. you're right, I plan for the transitions. I think they're more important than, well, not more important, but they are important to me to actually create a narrative and to have like a shape and a form of the musical piece. But then when I arrive at the material that I, then then it can, this, the length and the, the development or the non-development, the, the, the stasis of the, the material can can have, uh, well, I just play with it in the, there and then in the real time. But to know then and to be inside this material, to know when to do the transition is something I, it occurs live in the in the in the moment but i often rehearse how and how this um, this transition can be made softly or uh, significantly like a, like an abrupt thing or more like a like a crossfade kind of thing i that is uh, a good observation that is uh, very crucial in in the way that i i work because uh, sometimes i want very sharp distinct change and sometimes i just want it to just you don't you're not aware that things are changing but they are really doing so the, uh, this it's uh, this this is what i do i, I rehearse a lot of this uh, lo logistical transitions between materials and because you're working with uh maybe a more extended setup than many people uh, these uh, these setups. So um, I just kind of want to explain that these transitions are not just a matter of like flipping no. a switch, right? Like you're often kind of physically moving these more extensive distances. Um, <laughs> I've seen it in the back, you know, I'm like sitting in the violin section of an orchestra, for example, and all I have to do is take care of my own fiddle. And meanwhile, there's a percussionist running a marathon exactly. between yeah. all the um, the different instruments. So you're also rehearsing the physical process Yes, the, the physical process is important. And also with the placement of of, of objects is also important and that's also why 
this uh, this project is also about uh, the haptic experience. I mean, to actually have an idea and also a plan how to actually execute these things in uh, in real time. Even though the music is kind of slow, can be uh, can be feel, felt like small. They're always in the vicinity, in the vicinity where I work all the time. I mean, when you hear the music and when you see me, it's it's kind of maybe a kind of a ambiguous uh, kind of thing because you see me super busy, but the music maybe moves very slow. So it's it's also uh, a difficult way of actually handling those two energies in a way. I mean, the the the, the body language which moves really fast, but the music is doing small small things, small changes. I think that that contrast can be really, really potent, actually. Um, yeah, sort of like if you close your eyes versus if you're watching, you have these extremely different sonic experiences, but that um, I think they're really valuable in their own way because they lend themselves to uh, questioning, like what is he doing, for yeah, example. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I guess I can sort of describe an experience that I had recently playing a piece of fairly slow-moving music by Klaus Lang that required these uh, kind of uh, balletic leaps from all corners of the instrument. And the conductor advised us to not make it look like it was such a uh, such a virtuosic, uh, you know, uh, task to have to transition the finger from point to point on the fingerboard in this way, um, which uh, my my stomach was really kind of in knots for this because I'm just like, don't make yeah. it look hard. Uh, even though it I was there, really I saw that actually, <laughs> I saw that performance, and I actually, actually I thought about the similar things that what what you see. I also tell my audience to just close your eyes. I mean, it's not always very important to see what I do. I want, because that may be kind of um, not revealing, but it's uh, it kind of gives you the false information what I really want to <laughs> communicate. So sometimes it looks super busy, but uh, no, it's also interesting and depends on the listener what they really prefer to do. I mean, I prefer to close my eyes in this, this case because I get uh, distracted by <laughs> the movement or many other things. So it's, it's, I prefer to actually go in deep into the sound. But um, for a research uh, point of view, maybe also people are super interested in seeing and how these things work. And, and, but I mean, these this things go together, but uh, I don't know.
Can you tell us about the rest of your setup? I'm particularly interested in the bass drum or the gran casa, uh, which features in a lot of your work, and I'd like to know about your relationship to that. As I said in the beginning, it it uh, dates from way back when I actually decided just to change my whole approach to the drums and take away the pedals and just working horizontally with uh, a membrane, basically. In the beginning, I didn't have a gran casa. I had snare drum, I had a rototom, like these uh, fake timpanis, <laughs> which you can you can tune by just doing this circling movement. And uh, But eventually, the m- more... I used this uh, approach with uh, with the one uh, horizontal membrane. I just uh, needed more space, basically. <laughs> the bigger the drum, the better. <laughs> so and and also the the possibility of the Gran Casa have have is been uh, like the crucial and the center core of my my work since like twenty years now. So this is hugely important, and I actually realized that I could do everything that I wanted to do also like uh, as in a drum set because the potential of the the big skin of the Gran Casa is actually that imitates the hi-hat or the snare drum or other things. I only use my hands so because uh, when I decided to take away the pedals it was because my feet they were just moving by themselves without consciously deciding what they are actually doing. So I decided just to take that away and just focus on the hands and what they can do and be very, very conscious about the roles of what I was doing in the musical collaborations. And I found that the Gran Casa could actually give me everything that I was looking for. I didn't have to have a whole drum set with cymbals and everything. So this uh, drum, it still uh, surprises me also uh, now with the, with the speakers that I had, uh, attached to it. So it is, it's full of mystery, this, this drum, and also a potential that I also see is coming. And lots of many more percussionists are using this kind of setup to, to build their artistic work on. Um, I'm interested in also in how it seems that you are, uh, you just seem to work very easily with your own intuition and to know also when to follow an instinct like even describing taking the pedals away um and kind of arriving at this um uh it's funny to describe the bass drum as economical because it's huge uh but that's nevertheless um the impression that i'm getting uh is that you know we can uh with one instrument uh you know generate sort of this this uh, orchestration that might typically that you would think of maybe as being possible with many more instruments. And I suppose from uh, my own perspective as um, uh, not being kind of not coming out of this improvising tradition or not being more sort of like told what to do and just doing it uh, for better or for worse. I would like to know just uh, how you go to trust that intuition. Uh, if you maybe you've always trusted it, in which case, uh, what's that like? <laughs> I think it it is is it. Uh, I realized quite early that um, this was the only way that I could do music. I really felt that it has to be a, a mix of uh, very on the spot decisions and also based in in my aesthetical choices and all my musical background. So I was never, uh, well, I come from jazz, basically, I studied jazz. And then, uh, so the improvisation was a very important aspect from, from early on, actually. But, and then I didn't feel that I could express myself as a drummer or as a musician because I wanted to do so many other things than normally a drummer doesn't do. So that's why I also took away 
the pedals and started to actually search in the, the particular one drum how I could actually play melodies or uh, be, make, uh, make harmonies or play bass line or whatever. I mean, to, to take upon other roles, to expand that possibility as a musician because I really I didn't felt, feel free at all in the drum set uh, role. And after... After being exposed to some musicians in, in Stockholm, Sweden, in when I was studying in the late 90s, I just got really blown away by the, the possibility of, of my friend Raymond Street, a drummer there, and his ability to be free in... in with Also, in, in, he had a drum, drum set, actually, a setup, but the way he played it, I've never seen before. And then actually working with him, I just realized, okay, there's no turning back now. <laughs> I have to do something. And that just uh, put me on the line with actually going into detail with uh, with this approach. And uh, yeah, the, the liberty of uh, creating music for yourself there and then is, is always been there for me. And as actually the, the trust that I could do this was quite significant to to how i was feeling when i was playing jazz in a, in a standard way which i w didn't feel free at all but the, this just this sudden change which was quite quite significant this change was uh, very important for me and then i realized that this i can do and this 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 is what i want to do and this strong will of doing this was actually the reason why you could actually build a trust in yourself to develop it you often work in collaborative environments and you have all these um, different groups that are characterized by uh, sounds that I would not be so um, so direct uh, and try to uh, actually put words to them because it seems as though all of these uh, these groups work very hard to elude definition or to elude um, kind of the, the taxonomy in a way. Uh, but this is maybe, uh, well, this is uh, your first solo album uh, in a few years, right? Yeah. Uh, so I am interested to know how you navigate between those different types of environments when you're in collaboration versus when you're mm. in solo. It's a very interesting question because this is going to be one of the one of the one of the things in my reflection about this project because I started this in uh, in during COVID went into this research as a solo a soloist but then uh, as you say lots of my lots of my projects are collaborative projects and i always use my solo research i guess it's it's how we work like uh, within the projects it's that we have our own solo research and then uh, little by little we introduce the new work in our projects but uh, sometimes uh, the solo project and the material that you develop can be such uh, non-collaborational, I would say, because it's so heavy and it so, takes so much space. And it's, I mean, if you listen to Musica Liquida and you think, how can I introduce this material in a work like with my quartet, for example. And I tried this uh, the, the other day and I put up my, my whole set and we had a, we had a, like three days recording session with this group, which I've been working with more than fifteen years. So we know each other, so we trust each other. To you can do whatever you want there. If it doesn't work, well, doesn't matter. We can we can go somewhere else. And actually, the first day, <laughs> I put up and I just immediately felt this is not working at all. My solo material on this is it's not opening up 
or inviting people to come in. It's already so um, full of uh, of things, and it's not really dialogue. You can't create so much dialogue. You just you just set how do you say they set the parameters there, and they have to deal with it. It's not like it's like goes both ways. It really felt very strong when I when I discovered that the first day. I had the I was thinking that this would happen, but I had to try it out to see how that worked. And then after the second day, I went back to my Gran Casa situation, which I normally do within this band and still with the speakers, but working in another way, more dynamically, more like intuitive. The solo work has a more like pre-compositional aspect of it because it's only you that is going to perform it. So I plan more about the sequence and the narrative and also the material, how it's going to be developed, then when I work in collaborative, because I need to have this open listening to what's coming from them, even though I put some of the material in for my solo work, but it's not the same. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite different, actually. Mm. Maybe you can share with us a bit about the three narratives on the album. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can can say that the the first track, the Mercurio one, is um, it's uh, what uh, no, 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 I have to think about. <laughs> my apologies. No, no, it's fine. I mean, to analyze my. No, it's a it's a this longest piece on the record, and it's actually the 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 the. It starts with the most significant sound I think I've developed over these years. It's the, it's a more like a kind of in between a brass and a siren instrument. It's a, it's a sine sine wave that I send through the vibrating speaker, and on the, it's vibrating with a triangle on it. So it's kind of distorted the sound, but it's it's super. It's kind of an ambiguous instrument, I would say. I mean, maybe it's like. Uh, unidentified instrument which I really like because you don't really know what it is but it's a drum sounding with the with the triangle vibrating So this, 
this uh, this has uh, the whole the whole piece has kind of a mel um, some some small phrases and a melody aspect of it, which is actually put in sparse uh, positions on the whole track. And there's uh, there are also in in the beginning of the first six seven minutes there's a kind of a slow development of layers that are that are mixed and introduced and there are small very subtle changes. And uh, in the end, there's also a, a very long stretch of just the very low frequencies vibrating in, in the space with small changes also there and the small um, melody um, phrases by this uh, strange instrument. <laughs> the second is uh, also um, it's kind of uh, related to the first piece. There are also the, the, these kind of layers of drones of sounds that are mixed together, but it's more industrial in a way, I think. This uh, kind of really ambiguous sound uh, palette, in, at least towards the end there, in like cross-fade with material that uh, overlaps each other. But also there's also this kind of a sample of something I recorded in the studio, which is sent back in, in reverse, actually, in uh, through the speakers, which is kind of a, a harmonic material with vibrating things that are sent again through the vibrating speakers, and then I treat it to, and prepare it. So it's kind of a multi-treated uh, track in a way, which is a kind of a, a loop, which is in the background. The title of the track is uh, Increspatura su un lago, which means ripples on a lake, which I do in, in this piece, which it starts with a small thing and then it's just layers upon layers, upon, like the rings in the uh, ripples on the lake. No? And the third track is Vapore, which is uh, vapor in Italian. And this is actually a non-edited track. This is just the way I played it. The, the last track, it's not done anything. And it was kind of a, it was a very, that was kind of a ceremonial experience for me to actually enter in this material and, and explore how this sounded in that space with these uh, beatings and frequencies with the, with the melody that I play on, on it with a small cantele sample, which is going under also vibrating on the head of the drum. Future directions for all of this material. When I walked in, there was a banana sitting on one of the instruments, but then uh, you ate it. So clearly that is not, uh, clearly we can expect more from the fruit approach. Can you tell us where you're planning on taking some of this material next in both uh, your solo and collaborative work? Well, the, this, uh, the, the Musica Liquida, is uh, the first of the um, of uh, actually it's going to be two records solo records the second one is now coming on another label a belgian label but uh, it's uh, totally different because actually the experience of the emmanuel vigeland mensuleum with the reverb made me think to do the opposite to do the totally opposite and to take my material into a echo free chamber so I went up to the physics building here at the university and there's the old, where they did like frequency testing and all these things where there's like, there's no reflection whatsoever. It's totally dry and it's not been used in the 70s. So it's really dirty also, super dirty. And it's no, it was not healthy to record there because I got sick after, but I mean. The, Can you explain dirty? Like how was there? It's not been washed. I mean, this, this just this, uh, this uh, damp material 
old damp material and the smell of it, there's no ventilation. I mean, I think you need to, like, the next time you record, it should be like in a perfume studio, yeah, <laughs> perfume laboratory okay. to make up for all of these unfortunate uh, scent experiences. No, but I mean, I, it was, uh, and the material of it, you will hear it. Uh, I can show, I can play something for you if you want uh, later, but this is. Uh, Another music, but it's with the same in, uh, instruments, with the, the timpani, the snare drum, and the gran casa, but it's in a, actually in a, a space which has no reflection, other than the instrument themselves and me being there to reflect upon me. And the, it was kind of, kind of interesting how to, how to mic it, how to record it, because there it's uh, even more important where you position the mic because uh, there are actually, if you position the mic somewhere, it won't be heard what you're doing because uh, there's no reflection. So we had a um, challenge there, but um, there's much more, uh, uh, see, um, what can I say, activity in on that record and also actually play groove-based music on on that. Yeah, lots of, uh, lots of rhythms and... Uh, and uh, also, but also in in a way, layering the rhythms and uh, but playing with the vibrating speakers, but also physically hitting the drums <laughs> as you normally do. Yeah, so it's a it's a totally different um, and the, the the interaction between these two albums is also very important for me to to say something about in my research. This research project has given me even more insight of actually the co-creational aspect of things and of space how much it actually has to say of how you create things. It's been, uh, and uh, and I'll, that's also why I wanted to discover these two two ways of actually throwing material in, in the space, which I will never be in, and recording that and on you know, the first spot to see what happens. No? The, my first reaction to be in another place with my material and how that uh, is actually sounding on the recording. Maybe because to record something afresh, Without, um, yeah, this is, that's been a really nice thing for me in, in, in these projects to discover. Thank you all so much for your ears. For those of you who've made it this far, I've got a little tidbit for you, which is that it is unambiguously winter here in Oslo. And for the past 10 minutes, I've been watching a group of like five to six kids all armed with shovels who are absolutely pummeling a pile of snow to pieces. Very thankful to be at least 10 feet away from whatever's going on over there. And uh, speaking of gratitude, thank you so much to Ingar for his time and for the space. All of the clips in the episode are from his album Musica Likida, which you're free to stream on Bandcamp or whatever suspicious platform of your choice. If you'd like to learn more about the adventures of Ingar Zak, you can visit his website at ingarzak.com. That's I-N-G-A-R-Z-A-C-H.com. Maybe I should start coming up with jingles for all these names so that I don't have to keep uh, pronouncing them or spelling them in this very boring way. You can let me know your thoughts on that in the comments below. And you can, of course, learn more about Sofa Music at sofamusic.no. I'll catch you on the flip side.